Hi everyone, welcome back to Prevention Nation. Where we believe education and awareness can change the culture of violence. My name is Roy Lutz. And I'm Caitlin Wagenfield. Oh, welcome back to Prevention Nation. It's Roy here with Caitlin and uh, today's kind of a special day, right? Um, it's super special. Yeah. I've talked a lot about how I love to read on the podcast and this gave me the perfect reason to read for work. Yeah, you did get paid to read. That's pretty awesome. It's yeah. my dream job. It's your dream job. Okay. Um, well, uh, yeah, I guess our listeners want to hear why it's special, such a special day. It's special because we have a guest. Guest. Uh, tell us why, uh, who you are and why you're here. Well, good afternoon. My name is Victoria Ellen, and I am the author of a book titled Painting in the Rain, A True Story of Trickery and Triumph. I love that title, that, that trickery and triumph. It made me think of wild, crazy. Um, usually those tales that you see on a documentary or some show about some story, you just, you're never going to believe. Absolutely. Um, and it is. It is a, a very strange story. And I felt like with the title Painting in the Rain that really didn't give too much of a description of where we were going in the story. We needed a subtitle that would kind of give an, a reader an idea of what was happening throughout the story. And it is a memoir and it is based in true crime and it is inspirational. So we kind of touch multi-genre, very you know, yeah. hybrid type of book. Very. Which which genre do you think pulls through most um, in that in that story of yours? Um. Well, I mean, it is a memoir, so I mean th- that is probably the strongest, right? But most importantly, the entire story is based around true crime, and that seems to be one of the most popular genres right now. So, um, I'm a crime junkie. Any like true crime podcast? Are you a podcaster? <clears throat> a little bit. Okay, so I listen to Crime Junkie. It's my favorite. I listen to it every Monday. And I use it in my prevention education um, when I'm talking to kids about when they're in situations. Like, it's okay to be weird, be rude, stay safe. Like, you have to set those boundaries to keep yourself protected. Um, so I use Crime Junkie all the time. I refer to it often. Awesome. But when I was reading this, it was very much like any story that I would have listened to on I would Monday. love to be on Crime Junkie. That would be amazing. Oh God, I'll have to send it to them. I'll, I'll send that, like, shout-out. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for the shout-out. <laughs> yeah, how do you make that happen? I'm just excited to be here. They're, they're Indiana girls. Really? Yeah, so they're in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So they're super close. That I is think, close. I think we can make it happen. We can. I'm in. So, Victoria, what, what prompted you to write your story? Why do you think your story is worth reading? So, excellent question, Mm -hmm. Roy. Uh, The primary reason for writing this book was so that none of my pain would be wasted. I have been through so much, my children have been through so much, and I felt like I should utilize that pain for a purpose and help people. I really, really just have a heart to help people. And if my pain in some way, shape, or form could help someone else not go through the same type of trauma, and abuse that I went through, then it was worth it. Wow, I thought it was. I thought your answer was going to say be more around the realm of it was cathartic. You know, like it was healing. Yeah. Did it have the cathartic? Component? Uh, it, it was somewhat cathartic, but I mean, I have been through so much therapy for so long. I have worked diligently to become a really healthy, whole, healed person. And so um, I had really already worked through a lot of it. Okay. Um, 
some of it was cathartic, um, but you know, we were really rounding third and heading for home when I wrote this book. So there was a lot of really exciting mm-hmm. moments. Yeah. Um, and getting to the end of this book, being able to close that last chapter and move on was, you know, definitely like being in the winner's circle and, you know, shaking your fists in the air above, above your head, you know, kind of feeling. Yeah. So even, you know, and admittedly for the listeners, I haven't read the whole book. I've skimmed through a bunch and read some different excerpts and I've read all the reviews. Um, one of the things that just, you know, regarding, you know, your answer there, it being not really necessarily cathartic because you had already done so much healing. One of the things I really liked when you uh, drew, I can't remember the name of the chapter, but where you drew the connection with, uh, you know, the Italian stallion, Rocky Balboa, and having to fight Apollo Creed again, um, even though they had both decided in the movies that they weren't going to rematch, right? But yet they did. And I just think to myself, in your situation, were you, um, had you done most of that healing prior to that rematch? No, actually, that rematch um, kind of spurred the last bit of healing for me. I had come a long way. Yeah. I really had. But, um, you know, something that I've talked about in the book and that I talk about on my social pages is I I really don't like bullies. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he could have left us alone. Right. He could have stayed in his lane. I mean, you know, he already destroyed our lives the first time around, and I had spent 10 years putting the pieces back together again. And I really wasn't interested in that rematch, although I knew it was coming. It was always in the back of my mind, you know. And for any trauma survivor, Mm -hmm. any person that's been through any type of abuse, I mean, it really is kind of like in the back of your mind at all times. um, And you're always alert and aware of what's going on and what could possibly happen. So I knew it was coming eventually. Yeah. But um, I did not realize how arduous it would be for this mm-hmm. this last stint. And so I was able to really dig deep and find some strength that I did not know that I still had in me. Actually, yeah. piggybacking off that. So I was reading, it was chapter six, so it's the bombshells chapter. And I think that is when, that's when all these tabs started happening in the book. because of the I did show, notice there was a bunch of tabs that built up right towards the end. Yes. Yeah. So at the chapter six and then like towards the end, it started, started tabbing more. I'm one of those book people. Um, but I feel like before that, it was a lot of backstory. And it's like, oh, this is bad. And then it escalates in chapter six. And we were talking about like, was it cathartic? Was it healing? But in the same way, like, I feel like having to recount those stories is, it's so hard. So, like, what ways were you practicing self-care to, like, get through that? Because isn't just, like, having to bring that back up was probably hard. So, I'm glad that you touched on this, Caitlin, because even though you go through therapy and Mm -hmm. even though you're working on your own self-care, I did have to regulate and figure out where do I need to be? in this mm-hmm. this moment, in this time, writing this chapter. And so uh, my co-author is Janice Heisel, and she is an award-winning true crime author. And um, one of the reasons why I partnered with her was because, number one, she's obviously an incredible writer. Amazing. Yes. And um, number two, I connected with her through my publisher and we instantly hit it off and I knew like I knew that there was someone out there that was supposed to help me and partner with me in this book um, but I knew that she would help bring the legitimacy to my story Mm -hmm. and help really articulate 
the thousands of pages of documents and hours and hours and hours and years and years and years that I had spent in litigation and she would be able to help unpack that. And so I said all that to say that I knew she would be patient with me. And for me, um, sometimes we would do a session where we would be writing and she, because basically it was all an interview and then dictation, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes she would interview me and it was like 20 minutes and I'm like, okay, well, it's been good to see you today. Have a, have a good week. I'll see you next week. And she's like, it's been 20 minutes. And I'm like, yep, I'm done. Mm -hmm. Because that's all I had. That's yeah. all I had to give that day. Like that, that might have only been, you know, 20 minutes of an interview, but it helped get to that point in the story. Or, you know, other times the interview might have lasted two hours and yeah. we would get a lot further and get a lot more accomplished that week. But I just really had to regulate myself, listen to myself, you know, be in tune with what what's making me super uncomfortable. And there are some really icky chapters in there and, and difficult situations that obviously you plowed through in the beginning. Um, and those things really required a lot more of me internally. And they were extremely difficult. I didn't want to talk about those things again. And sometimes I would say, I just don't want to talk about that today. And she'd go, okay, but we're going to have to talk mm -hmm. about it. And I'm like, I know we are, but I'm not ready for that today. Yeah. So we'll get to that next week and I'll just, I'll build up to that point. So it's almost like weightlifting. You start yeah. out with the tens, right? You're, you're going to just, you've got free weights and you're going to just have some dumbbells and you're going to lift 10 pounds. And then eventually over time, you can do 25s right with ease and so that was kind of in my mind I was building up mm -hmm. to those difficult conversations and then once we got there I'm like I've got yeah. this I can do this you know I can do hard things that's a great analogy that's pretty good thanks yeah thank you well and you know and it didn't even occur to me until Caitlin asked that question and you started answering that <clears throat> when I think about um, I used to work as a child abuse investigator and when we think about forensic interviews we don't want to interview uh, part of the reason why forensic interviews became so necessary is because uh, previous to that, victims would get interviewed by a police officer at the scene and then interviewed again and interviewed again and re-traumatizing over and over again. And it didn't, you know, like I said, it didn't even occur to me until Caitlin asked that, that that had to. You were going through that trauma again and again. Absolutely. Every, every interview with her. Absolutely. And my children and I had already been through that so many times through so many court cases, hearing after hearing, you know, trial after trial. I mean, we had relived this so many times and it was like enough already, but I knew that this was really the last time mm -hmm. we would have to revisit some of this horrible, um, you know, some of the horrible things. And so I'm just like, we can do this. And the reason why we need to do this is because it's going to help somebody. Yeah. Well, okay. So, oh yeah, that's, it's, it's tough then. So you, you know, had in your brain that you're going through this and it's going to be the last time you have to do it. And then here you are sitting on our couch in an interview about right. it. And then I saw you on an interview on TV. And then, yeah. like, does that does that worry you that you're going to have to keep reliving it? Or? Um, no, because, um, so part of the story is just extremely, I mean, the end is really, like, it is just the greatest end ever. I mean, if you were going to pen this story, you know, and we were think we would be writing some type of, I don't know, fiction story, you know, you want a happy ending. I mean, everybody doesn't want to end with people sobbing and crying. And, you know, this right. isn't one of those things where you read a book and you get to the end and it's like, gosh, that was the most horrible ending ever. I wasted three weeks of my life reading this book. I'll never get this time back. You know, that's not what happens when you read Painting in the Rain. 
The story is difficult, arduous, yes, but when you get to the end, it's so totally worth it. And the difficult moments that I was specifically alluding to was the sexual abuse. And so that stuff we don't have to talk about. It pretty much speaks for itself. And so that was the difficult stuff that I was like, oh, i got to unpack that. But the rest of it is really just overcoming, you know, mental illness, living with someone who has a mental illness, living Mm -hmm. through that abuse, living through trauma, how do you put the pieces back together, and all of those things for me, really, it's it's great because I'm like, oh my god, I should be in a padded cell somewhere, and I'm not. It's amazing. One word that really came to my mind, and we try to teach this to all of our students that we work with and all of our community members, is resiliency. So when I was reading this book, I was just like, you, your resiliency, your children, um, you know, the people in your life, your parents, like being built up around you, your support systems. Um, but kind of looking back at your children, especially with some of the stuff in this book, it's not just your story, it's theirs too. It is. Um, what kind of conversations went into writing this book, I mean, with your kids? So um, a lot of very, very like intense kind of fellowship, right? Mm-hmm. Because to your point, and I've said that to them many times, it's not just my story, it's our story. And you have your own stories as well that you can choose to tell or you don't have to tell right but I'm going to try to articulate as much as I can you know some of the story that involves you um but I don't want to overshare yeah because it's not my business right so I had to had to have their permission you know yeah absolutely and then had to move forward with are you comfortable with sharing this okay you're not comfortable what are you comfortable with Mm -hmm. and so just working through that with a lot of compassion and empathy and understanding and patience Mm -hmm. and and just trying to get to that place and they are extremely resilient they're like my heroes I say that all the time I Mm -hmm. love the dedication in the book (gasps) thank you it was very touching Thank you. Thank you so much. I meant every single word of that and really labored over how to unpack everything. But Really good. There was one part where my stomach really dropped in the book. Okay. And I'm not going to spoil anything, um, but there was a four-hour visitation on a Friday oh. that was trying to be forced. Yes. And I immediately... I, I wish you could have seen me. I was, I when I'm not here, I teach dance. Um, so I was between classes reading it, and all of a sudden I was like in the back of my chair, like gripping the arms. And I was like, nope. I, was like, I just set this down. And then it, you, I, like, you came forward and you were like, that's not happening. Like, I have a bad feeling about this. And then you were able to rework that and send your son with her. And then what came out later with um, the Colorado. Um, thing. Um, I'm not going to call it a cult, but cult-like behaviors. Very much, yes. I was just like, I knew that's where that was going, and I just, I felt it, and I can only imagine that I'm feeling that through reading the passage. I can imagine what you were going through in that, like, moment, what your head was thinking. Yes, well, when you are constantly, your nervous system is always on alert. Exactly, that fight or flight. Always fight or flight, every day of your life. I mean, all day, every day. It's such a scary place to be. And to your point, I mean, you never know what's coming next. I mean, the guy comes back from, you know, the proverbial dead right after Mm -hmm. this 10 years of radio Mm -hmm. silence. And then now it's like, you know, you're hearing all these different things and you're finding out different things. And, you know, for example, this cult-like 
lifestyle, you know, relocating from Ohio to Colorado and, you know, one knows where you are and there are all of these secrets, constantly secrets, you know, no one's allowed to know anything and living, you know, this life of like, no one's allowed to know what's going on or where I live or where I work or my address or my business address. I mean, everything is a complete secret. And so can you imagine? And it's just like, oh, here, just send your kids with this person that, is also a perpetrator and that you know they haven't seen for 10 years and you have no idea where they're going here you go I mean it's just it's absurd really um, and the, the system is broken which is another reason why I felt like I needed to um, go to bat for my kids and I know there are other children out there that are probably suffering and other parents who are suffering so yeah that was uh yeah both Caitlin and I did intervention services before working here so I worked as a child abuse investigator here in Warren County, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the system is, don't get me wrong, I mean, we have some really remarkable judges and magistrates um, that, in my opinion, and the work that I've got to do with them, but that was always one of the most challenging things when I was working a case, and I had a parent caregiver that just, it just, they had to, they were obligated by law to send their child on that visitation. and but they knew something was gonna happen. They knew, and I just, I used to, that used to be the hardest thing for me to advise on because I would sit here and think to myself, if I, you know, with my own children at home, I would not send them. But then I'm advising parents, well, the, the court order says you have to. And I, I just would watch that, that parents just struggle with what do you do? And I just, when when I was reading that excerpt or the little parts that were tabbed, um, that Caitlin tabbed for me, I just, I don't know, man, my sympathies for you and what you, you had to do. Yeah, so. it, it was literally the hardest thing that I ever, ever had to do. And you know that feeling, like, you know, in your gut, mm -hmm. right? You know, that still small voice, it's like, no, something bad's going to happen. And I actually had a child um, investigator um, that told me, after um, one of the initial um, uh, visits where sexual abuse, where, where the children came home with visual signs of sexual abuse and the uh, child abuse investigator said, well, the next time you send them, make sure you take them directly to the Mayerson Clinic for um, you know, a rape kit or whatever. And I, I mean the words, the next time, mm -hmm. just like reverberated in my mind. I'm like, the next time? That shouldn't yeah. be in the vocabulary at like, that point. Like, the next time. Right. Did, yeah. I'm like, did you just hear what I heard? You know, and I was thinking in my head, this is lunacy. It is lunacy. I'm like, what? I'm like, there will never be a next time. Yeah. And there, there actually never was a next time, really. Good for you. You know? And I just thought, I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know if I'm going to have to shave my head and change my name and move to another country. I don't know if I'm going to have to run. I don't know what I'm going to have to do, but there will never Are be Are you going to find time. yourself incarcerated? Are you going right. to, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. really, well, then, like, wow. Exactly. And Lunacy I was is what yeah. you said. Yeah. yeah, and I was sentenced to jail, of course, and all of the things. And, you know, it's like trying to intimidate you and manipulate you into doing things for, you know, their benefit. And I just, I refuse to be manipulated. I refuse to be intimidated by fear because I was motivated by love. Yeah. For my children. And there's nothing I wouldn't do for them. Yeah, that's definitely the part of your story that resonates most for me. I um, wanna, and I, you and I shared a little bit on text yesterday, but one of my daughters shared her survival story on one of our podcasts. Um, 
but it, you know I didn't ever have that challenge you had that challenge where you had the you had that um that challenge of do I have to send my kids on this visitation my daughter uh, my youngest daughter she was sexually assaulted by somebody outside of the family so it was I didn't ever have to deal with that visitation so I had the luxury of just when she came and told us to say we're not going there again, right. right? I was able to just cut that out of our life, right? Um, but you didn't. You had to hang on, and I—I I don't know. I just that seems seems so challenging. I don't even know how to get through that. Yeah, well, and it goes back to resiliency. Um, just knowing that you're going to make it at some point, somehow, some way. Never giving up hope. I mean, there were times, and I articulated this in the book where I was just so tired. I mean. Even the warrior gets weary. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you just are tired of the battle. You're tired of the fight. But giving up is not an option. It's not an option. So I might have to just sit down here for a minute and take a break. Yeah. I might have to, you know, just rest my head for a little bit. But I'm going to get back up and I'm going to be rejuvenated. I'm going to have more strength than I had before. I was a little beat down. I was a little weary from the fight. But I'm going to make it. We're going to get through this. I don't know how. I don't know when. I know that someday you're going to turn 18. Yeah. Someday I won't have to. And I won't have to deal with it after that. Yeah. And that actually was the finish line for me in my brain. It was, oh, well, after 18, they can't force you to do visits. Right. So I kind of had a stopping point. I kind of had a finish line. Uh, and it was 18 in my mind. So 18, 18 was your, your target then? You thought, uh, so... Uh, I, I yeah, I your story is bizarre to me because having having worked in the field, I want to ask you a million and one questions yes. about those experiences. But again, I don't want to ruin the book, and I don't want to no, ruin you it. You can ask, but yeah. like, uh, it's just uh, did nobody advocate for you all then in the regards that twelve and thirteen is typically the age where a kid can make a choice to not visit anymore. Correct. There were no advocates for me or for our children. I'm so sorry, Victoria. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. It was horrible. It was it horrible. horrible. The county where we were, um, you know, to your point, you would think that twelve and thirteen is old enough. Mm-hmm. And at that time when he resurfaced, they were um, twelve and fifteen. Yeah. And so this is should not even be a discussion. Shouldn't have been. Um, she was three the last time she saw him. There, it's not. There's no. You don't even know the person bond. anymore. Yeah. No, there was no paternal bond. He was there long enough to be abusive, and then you were gone, and we put all the pieces back together again and figured it out. Yeah. There should have never been any type of re-establishing of parenting time, which was the motion that was filed. Yeah, at the very least, I mean, it was unsupervised, I assume? Um, at the beginning, it was supervised. And how fast did it go to unsupervised? It ramped up in like nine months, I believe it was. Okay. Yeah, no. From what, like a four-hour visit to an eight-hour visit to an overnight <clears throat> to a Friday night to Sunday morning. I was sitting there, mm-hmm. listen, in the book, like, what is going on here? But working intervention, I'm like, I know it happens. But it's maddening. Every time I hear it, I'm always still like perplexed. Well, I sat there in the courtroom. I'll never forget when the magistrate handed down that ruling that they were going to have to start doing visits initially. And I react. I mean, I just sat there. I was stunned. I was in awe, speechless. Thank goodness, because I was still in a courtroom. (laughs) Right. But sick to my stomach. Yeah. Like, how could this be? How could this be? They're old enough to make their own decision. And then we're going to do this dog and pony show literally for six years. Are you serious right now? Yeah. Because my daughter was 12. 
Yeah, right? she had six years ahead. And he had to ride this thing out. And literally in three different courts, we've got all of these different cases going. So you've got one case where it's a child visitation case. It's in domestic relations. You've got another case going that's an adoption case. And then you have a third case that is child support, which it's yes, it's in DR court, but it's not the same case to reestablish parenting time. Oh, and then over here, never mind the fact that he's a convicted felon already three times at that point, and he's still going around and around with some of the the criminal, um, you know, case that was going on. So he really had four cases going. I only had three. Only. <laughs> yeah, only had three. Yeah. So when you say four now, and again, if um, if this is something that reveal in the book that you know whatever, okay. um, we can cut it out. But with did you have a children's services case? You said did did you have a substantiated abuse at least? Yes. In one case, substantiated abuse. So in one case, yeah. you have substantiated abuse. Sexual. Okay, let me clarify. <clears throat> substantiated sexual abuse, naming their father as the, the perpetrator, perpetrator. and the, the child family. as the child victim. I mean, both children were named. Yeah, I. Mind gosh, boggling. Victoria, isn't it, it is mind boggling. Like, again, from having worked in that system, I don't even. I can't even think of cases that we would have handled in that way. That is shocking. I've I, never seen anything like it. I really haven't. And and it's not like I'm I'm looking for pity. I'm not looking for someone to feel sorry for you're us. You're looking for some clarity and some answers as to why we can do things this way. Well, and that was one of the things with Janice when we sat down initially and I started going through the documents and sharing with her my story, you know, just as she was deciding whether or not she even wanted to partner with me on this endeavor. And she's just sitting there mind blown. No yeah. kidding, Roy. I mean, she was just like, how could this be? And then she started putting all of these different court records together. I mean, she went through file after file, box after box after box. I mean, you can imagine litigation for 10 years, oh, what yeah. it must look like, right? With someone who was this lit litigious and he appealed so many different times. I mean, there was literally like all of these documents and she had to kind of make sense of it all. And so when she finally put it all on one table, we had met with um, a prosecuting attorney in one of the areas close by here. And we sat down with this, this attorney, and they actually have read through everything, my manuscript actually. And their response was, none of the information was all together on one table at one time. Mm-hmm. It was like, this county was doing this, this county's doing this, this county's doing this. No one is sitting down and putting all of these pieces together and putting this puzzle together on one table. And you see like, oh, I see the picture now. Mm -hmm. They couldn't see it. There were too many pieces. And he is a master of disguise. 